Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Thursday, March 19th. Really fun podcast for you guys today. We got the chance to sit down with the coach of Steve Johnson and Nicole Gibbs, someone who you might know well from his coverage on Tennis Channel, from his role as a broadcaster as well. The one and only Mark Lucero, who we've been fortunate enough to chat with a couple of times now on our Cracked Rackets podcast from player advice, coaching advice, tactics, the large picture, the business side. Coach Lucero can talk it all, and so that's why we were so excited to have him today. Obviously, we dove into the coronavirus and its continuing impact on the tennis world. Uh, You talked for Coach Lucero. He was in Indian Wells with Steve Johnson for the Challenger Final on the day that Indian Wells announced they were canceling the Masters and Premier events. So he talks about what it was like on the ground, the confusion the players were feeling, you know, the, the multiple feelings of anxiety, of fear, of, you know, just questioning what comes next. And he provides great insight into those topics. We also talk about the French Open been making their moves, moving their schedule to six days after the U.S. Open and what that effect might be on the rest of the tour events scheduled for that time. Well, he also offers a really interesting take on one way he thinks, ten, you know, we talk about unionization as a way for players to band together and get through these tough times, but he also talks about the, the idea of a universal basic income for tennis players. Uh, he, uh, I don't want to give it away now, but he actually offers uh, logistics behind that as well, and I had never heard what that thinking would look like, how that would become a feasible idea, and I have to say, you know, he can pitch anyone, but he certainly pitched me on his idea, and it makes a lot of sense, so we talk about all of those things. We also talk about some of the takeaways from the actual tennis that we saw during the 2020 season thus far. Players like Sonia Kennan and, you know, all of the next-gen ATP guys who have taken strides thus far in 2020, why they have been able to do so, what changes in the game seems to allow for these young players to be making these breakthroughs, as well as Novak Djokovic's 2020 season. Is there a chance he could actually go undefeated this year? Of course, that assumes that we're going to see tennis, and, you know, so much has to go right before that can even happen and obviously all of our thoughts are with everyone in the day-to-day struggle you know we there's bigger issues going on right now than the the uh i guess tour uh I think the word I was looking for are the structural issues facing tennis. We talk about all of that and more. We also have a little bit of fun at the end. All of us tennis craved right now. We're not going to get action for the next few months. So uh, I asked him for some recommendations. What are the YouTube highlights he goes to as his comfort food tennis-wise? What are, you know, the the tennis books or the tennis pieces of literature? All of those things and more. And, you know, it's just a really fun conversation. He is as banterous as anyone out there, and he's willing to put up with my humor. So it was a really fun fun conversation with coach Lucero but with that in mind before we can get to that conversation have to remind you listeners that today's podcast is brought to you of course by our friends at Diadem Sports and look as we mentioned given that we don't know when our next event is going to be for us to cover for us to you know maybe earn some big dollars doing a play-by-play gig or whatever it may be we are so grateful for the continued support from our friends at Diadem Sports you know by now they're helping tennis players across the globe elevate their game by designing the most 
most innovative performance tennis gear on the planet. It's developed with your performance in mind, whether you're a big power player. I'm sure Coach Lucero just he seems like a big, bulky guy. He strikes me as a guy with a big forehand. Uh, maybe for him, he would use the Nova 100 for us craftier people, you know, about precision, about control. We don't need to blow you off the court. We just like that slow death by a thousand paper cuts. Um, and that For us, we use that beautiful Elevate 98 racket, and of course, there's Solstice Power Strings, Elite XT, uh, the Flash Strings, the Evolution, and last but not least, the Impulse. And you know me, I'm an impulsive guy, so that just titled after me, you could call that the Gruskin as well. Uh, they've got strings for every style of game, so again, we are so grateful for their continued support. The least we can ask you to do, go check out their website, diademsports.com. Hopefully, you guys are still managing to get outside for a little bit of exercise. Doing it safely, of course, but you know, there's still opportunities to play tennis and stay safe at the same time. And if you're doing it, you want your game to be at its best because nothing would be more frustrating than being holed up in your house all day and knowing that your tennis game is suffering at the same time. So be sure to go check out their website, diademsports.com. Again, use the promo code CR50 for 50% off your order. And we are so grateful for their continued support of us at Crack Rackets. But with that in mind, enjoy my conversation with the one and only Mark Lucera. Joining us now on the Mini Break Podcast, he's a coach, consultant, commentator, burrito critic, and I'm going to say it, the most handsome man in all of tennis media, Mark Lucero. Welcome back to the Mini Break Podcast. How are you doing? Oh, man, I'm great, especially after that intro. Love it. <laughs> I've gotten it's short but time. sweet. Yeah, no, uh, it's, you know, flattery always builds a little bit of trust yeah, between you, you us. Yeah, you hit all the important things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, of course. And look, it's been a crazy time for all of us. Uh, let's start here. I, you know, I know you are, as a coach of professional players, as someone who is on the ground at Indian Wells, what have these past couple of weeks like? It's crazy to think that it's been, what, only 10 days since Indian Wells was canceled. And obviously so much has gone on around the world outside of tennis. But how have you been holding up? Yeah, good. It's been a whirlwind uh, for a lot of us. It just seems like, you know, it seems like so much has happened in a short amount of time. You know, it was uh, maybe about 10, 11 days ago that we were at the Indian Wells Challenger and we got the email about some enhanced measures to protect the ball kids and the linesmen. You know, they played Saturday and Sunday there with, you know, gloves with sanitary gloves on and the players were touching their own towels and, then Sunday midday, um, you know, Steve played Jack Sock in the final. And then a couple hours later, we started to hear some rumblings that there were discussions about canceling the event. And then sure enough, a couple hours later, you know, it, it leaked out and then the announcement made, was made. And, you know, and since then, just the world has just changed so quickly. Like every day there's massive news coming out, uh, you know, this past week about things getting closed down. I mean, here in L.A., we're... Uh, on a, you know, the governor ordered a shutdown of most of the businesses, you know, with some exceptions for, you know, restaurants that do delivery and, you know, medical stuff and, you know, banks, uh, but everyone's, you know, pretty much hunkered down. And um, obviously tennis is, you know, one of the last things on the minds of a lot of people, but it's just, it's a very, uh, it's a very surreal time with, you know, what's been going on. That's for sure. 
No, I grew up grocery shopping with my father, and I know that's not exactly tennis-focused, but I went to Meyer yesterday, and I've never seen anything like it. I mean, just there's no food left. Everyone's storing up. Everyone's buying all of these things. You're absolutely right when you say the world has changed. And I remember that night when they canceled Indian Wells, we did an emergency podcast with Ben Rothenberg, and he argued, look, had, they, had someone not tested positive in the Coachella Valley that day for coronavirus, the event might have actually gone on. So it does feel like a, you know, a whirlwind to go. Let's get some positive news at the front end for people to get them on the right start. That run by Stevie at the Indian Wells Challenger, he looked pretty good. Yeah, you know, that's, um, it's such a cool event. That was my first time at the, at the 125 in the desert before the BNP Paribas Open. And, you know, I, I just have so much respect for Oracle and, and gratitude for what they've done to sort of change the face of uh, of, of tennis in the United States. And that event is a first-class event. There are a ton of great players. I mean, Hugo Humbert was the number one seed. There were just a ton of good players in both draws, men's and women's. And, uh, yeah, it was really fun to watch Steve uh, work his way through the week. And, you know, it was really cool to see Jack Sock in the final, who had a tough, you know, 18 months. And, you know, when, when Jack and Steve play, this was, I think, their 11th match. Uh, you know, you can throw rankings out the window. It's one of those matchups where both players bring out the best in each other and both players, you know, highlight real shots, really high level of play. And yeah, it was, it was a really fun week. And unfortunately, you know, you know, like I said, the world changed quickly and the week sort of has become a little bit forgotten. But it was a, as a coach and as a fan of tennis, it was a blast to be a part of it. True or false, and you would be a better source than any I've heard, but I've heard there was an agreement beforehand. Jack and Steve went up to each other, and they said, hey, we can just agree. No backhands in this match. True or false? (laughs) Oh, I I actually saw some pretty good down-the-line backhands from both players. (laughs) That's fair. Uh, No, I just like, I would have been like, hey, can we agree no kick serves? Like, let's throw that out because you're going to do it. I'm going to do it. That's no fun for anyone. Oh, man, Um, on those courts, both guys' kick serves bounce so high. It's just... It's, you know, it's pretty tough to deal with. Luckily, you know, those, those match courts at Indian Wells, there's a lot of space to run around in the back of the court. Yeah, absolutely. And look, you're not going to find two guys with more gifted just wrists and ability to flick balls off than Steve Johnson and Jack Sock. And that may have been the last match we see for at least till June 6th. And, you know, that was the big announcement today. Officially, the two were suspending both the ATP and WTA, I believe it was, through that June 6th date uh, that obviously takes us all the through what was the scheduled uh, ending of the French Open. But let's wind back the clock a little bit. You mentioned it. You were on the ground at Indian Wells. I imagine at that point, uh, all of the players who were planning to participate in the event at, you know, the Premier and the uh, Masters event were on the grounds. You know, what was the feel that week in the buildup? What was it like as things started to leak out that, hey, we're probably going to end up canceling this event well there was definitely an awareness leading up to it that the coronavirus that the COVID-19 was becoming more of a factor globally and there were you know a number of people who were just curious if you know and myself included you know if there were going to be players that were going to have a hard time entering the country because there you know certain travel restrictions were already being put in place by the administration and I was curious if there was going to be an issue with players getting to the event if you know there were people who were on site who are already sick and just, you know, what we should do to, to keep ourselves safe. But there was really, you know, until that Sunday, I, and I think most people didn't really think there was a chance the event would get canceled. I think a lot of us were thinking if something were to happen, worst case scenario, they would play the event without fans. And then 
like you mentioned uh, in your chat with Ben Rothenberg, um, there was one positive test that turned up on Sunday morning. And what I found out was that later in that day, there were five more additional positive tests that turned up in the Coachella Valley that day. So Sunday, there were six positive tests and that led to, you know, the, the, the tournament team, you know, not wanting to move forward with the event, which I, you know, I think clearly they made the right decision. And, you know, if you look at Palm Springs, the demographic, if you look at an international event like that, there's a lot of factors that make it a really potentially dangerous place for, you know, for the residents in the Valley and then for the, you know, players, fans, staff, you know, just from the international nature of tennis in general, fans coming in from all over the world, players coming in from all over the world is potentially a very volatile mix. Yeah, absolutely. And just, I want to clarify real quickly, I got this wrong so that people don't yell at me. It's play canceled through June 8th, not June 6th. Um, Hey, great shot by me, as we would say on another podcast. But you you talk about the uncertainty because tennis is such an international sport. It's not just the players, it's the fans coming in to watch. And you hear uh, rumor, or not rumors, but the the story of the reputation is the word I was looking for for Indian Wells is it's an international crowd. And obviously it also, as you mentioned, slants older just given where the event is held. But in the immediate aftermath of it being canceled, we saw in the moment a couple of players stuck around and got their practice time in. But did you feel a sense of panic from the players? Because there really is no mechanism for these players to say, well, you know, let's come together. Let's figure out a solution. And I want to hear your thoughts on unionization later on. But was there a panic that set in? Was it, okay, this is the first domino. Now, where are things going to go? Well, I think the the players, and you know, I say we collectively, the people involved in the you know in the, the playing of the game, um, we didn't really know what it, what the, what it meant. We didn't really know the severity of you know of the virus in the United States at that point. And so, after the event was canceled on Sunday, we had um, there was you know an emergency meeting on Monday of the players with you know with Steve Simon from the WTA, like on, on the women's side, and the men were meeting also, and. You know, Miami came out quickly with a really strong statement that they were going to proceed, that they were going to proceed with fans, without fans, and they intended to play the tournament unless, you know, things in Florida were so bad that the state government, you know, prevented them from proceeding. And obviously with, you know, the NBA, with Major League Baseball, with a bunch of other sports leagues quickly moving after Indian Wells to close their, you know, to close their doors you know, Miami was left, you know, with no choice but to cancel. So it, it, to answer your question, in that immediate aftermath, you know, Indian Wells made the offering to all the players that they were going to, you know, pay their per diem for the rest of the week. And most players, to be honest, were advised to stay in the United States for those next few days because if they went back to Europe or their Asia or wherever they were from, there was a good chance they wouldn't get back. You know, they wouldn't be able to get back in the country if Miami were to be played. So that was why a bunch of players stuck around India Wells, just because there was no, um, there was really nowhere for them to go. And there was so much uncertainty, you know, the state of Florida on Monday had come out with a guideline that said anyone entering Florida from outside the country would have to self quarantine for 14 days. You know, so players from say from Mexico who went to Guadalajara to play the 125 there would have had a hard time. You know, they wouldn't have been able to play Miami. So they go to my, they go to Florida, play the 125 and tend to go to Miami after they would have had the quarantine for 14 days. So it was really becoming, you know, just this scenario where people really didn't know what to do and in such an unstable situation that was just so fluid and changing, you know, by the hour. And so that was, you know, to answer your question, that was why a bunch of players stuck around and practiced and, 
um, you know, until Miami came out a couple of days later and canceled their event, like that was when people started to go home. Yeah, no, I, as I mentioned before we started, I always appreciate that you do take the time to answer the questions, but feel free to take the answers wherever you want to go, coach. Um, but, sure. you know, in terms of the handling of the situation, because you use the word fluid, that's absolutely correct. It was so fluid. New details emerged each and every day. And because of those details, new precautions, new measures were taken by state governments, by, you know, sporting organizations, by corporations. You see all of these different things. In terms of how this was handled by the players, and again, I don't want to get you in trouble, but do you think there was anything they could have done differently? And, or maybe do you think this went about as well as, as smoothly as something like this? can go because it gets thrown around all the time this is an unprecedented situation I was talking with my parents they said you know the only thing they could remember even similar was after 9-11 and it was just the traveling restrictions and you would see empty airports but even then yes people weren't feeling safe but life could still continue on a day-to-day basis now we're all being told you know social distancing is the term and you know keep your space don't go out unnecessarily you can still go exercise outside but you know restaurants are closed bars are closed, all these sorts of things stay isolated. Um, is the, Do you think there's anything the WTA, the ATP could have done differently? And do you think the fact that there's not a player union, that each of these tennis players are still individual contractors, you know, how much of a role did that play in the sort of confusion that, that, that uh, transpired? Well, I, I think it's unsettling anytime you hear, I guess anytime you hear news that's pertinent to you on such a personal level, when you find out those things online, it's a little bit unsettling. But given the nature of you know of what's transpired in the last week and, and how timely that decision had to be made, you know, I don't think there's really anything that could have been done. I mean, if you look at if you look at how the NBA games had been canceled, I mean, all the players and the you know I can't remember the Jazz was it the Pacers the Jazz Arena they were already on the floor, and then all of a sudden the medical director came running onto the floor after consulting with the commissioner to cancel the game like those players had no idea either so you know i think you know it's unfortunate and i think yeah in an ideal world you notify the players before the press release goes you know the press releases go out online but in this scenario you know i don't think uh i don't really think there was much to be done um as far as a union i think in this sort of scenario the union would be um the union would be the mechanism by which the players could figure out a way along with the organization to be compensated during this time off. That's, that's, I think the best function of a union. You know, I've been following the, uh, the, the team sports leagues pretty closely with they, you know, with what they've been saying. And I know the NBA players union has been in contact with the teams regarding, you know, their wages uh, during this time, uh, major league baseball players association as well. And, you know, but like, you know, like you said, such an unprecedented time, you know, those unions and those player contracts, they have clauses in there for um, what are called force majeures or acts of God that can void, you know, that can void contracts. So they're, to be honest, they're, you know, at the mercy of, you know, what management chooses to do also. Um, And in this case, like, obviously the union would be, you know, the advocate for them. So Mm -hmm. it's just uh, something that's so unprecedented and, and, and scary for a lot of people on a lot of levels. 
Yeah, and look, we are both well aware, everyone is well aware that things such as what are the tennis players going to do? Should there be a tennis union? Those are small potato concerns compared to can we keep everyone healthy? Can we get this pandemic under control? But when something like this happens, and it's one of those once in a generation, hopefully, events, um, it does expose some of the inherent structural issues right now facing our sports. And even at a more individual level, I think more than anything, what this has shown is, and I'm not the first to use this term, but tennis players are all individual contractors. The schedule you're playing, the events you're going to, it's all on you, but it's beyond just the events and you know your results. It's also practice schedules and where you're going to be training out of. And with so many facilities being closed down with, you know, so there's just, I guess in California, there may be outdoor courts and you can still do a little bit of social distancing if you're playing in outdoor places. Um, but uh, you know, you are coach. You are currently coaching professional tennis players. In terms of finding practice schedules and places to train, how concerning is that at this point for the many players out there who not only don't know, you know, when they're going to be playing professionally next in terms of scheduling out this, you know, for better lack of lack of a better term, this training block, but you know where they can even play. Yeah, honestly, zero. <laughs> um, it's just it's so far off our radar right now. I mean, right now. You know, we are concerned with, you know, following the guidelines set out by, you know, the, the state of California and by the CDC by not being, you know, not in, not unknowingly sort of, you know, asymptomatically carrying something to someone else. Um, you know, the biggest concerns related to, you know, to doing our jobs right now, at least as far as the players are concerned, are making sure the players, you know, stay in shape and, and stay sane, to be honest. So, if it's, you know, doing meditations, if it's, you know, doing yoga in your home, if it's going outside for a run, if it's, you know, crushing the Peloton, whatever it is, um, I think there's a lot of ways to do that. And right now, practicing tennis is, you know, it's pretty unimportant, at least as far as I'm concerned and, and with the players that, you know, that, that we're working with. No, that's, again, that's a very mature answer. That's why we like having you on. Are you a Peloton guy? Uh, I do not own a Peloton. I like a Pel- I like Pelotons. Um I'm, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of getting on the bike in general. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, uh, you know, I, I've heard Peloton stock has gone up quite a bit in the last, uh, you know, the last week or so. Probably right. one of the few movers in the market, you know? No, I can only imagine. Let's go with a light topic here then. Mark Lucero's personal fitness reg- re- regimen while under quarantine looks like what? You know, I have the yoga mat on the floor. Um, I actually, the other day, I bought a piece of, uh, AstroTurf with rubber beneath it to chip some golf balls in the house. And uh, been, uh, <laughs> you know, when you text me about an hour ago to ask if I was going to be ready for 1.30, I uh, laced up the running shoes and put in a couple, uh, put in about 30 minutes of the hard yards on the cement outside, you know, so... <laughs> no, I, I absolutely love it. I've been running myself. I ran with one of my roommates who is in better shape than I am, and we did six sub eight minute miles. And afterwards, I'm like, oh, like damn, Dude, that's, that's a that's a humble brag right there. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> look, yeah, I, like they just slipped in your time the yeah, volume. <laughs> look, I uh, I have people to impress. Eventually, social distancing, God willing, will stop. And you know, at that point, I'm still looking for a girlfriend, coach. So, any of our female <laughs> listeners out there, um, no. But uh, <laughs> just to say, I still got it. Um, but yeah, no, it's like little, it, right? yeah, it's little things like that. The push-ups will be in play at some point. It's really just do what you have to do because uh, even in a non-tennis point, it's so important, right, to make sure physically, you know, because that making sure you're staying in shape, you're feeling comfortable because that 
that influences your mental side as well. Right? 100%. Yeah, you're exactly right. It's so important for the mind and body to do it to get outside and move or to, you know, move around inside your house, whatever, you know, whatever your circumstances might be. Yeah. So hopefully to all of you out there, look, we hope this podcast is good listening material. You just heard me drop my mile time. You'll be like, I'm losing to Alex. I got to speed up. (laughs) Uh, So if we can provide any motivation, any sort of relief from the day-to-day stresses that have emerged for so many, that's our goal here. Uh, One of the things that took my mind off of the coronavirus, certainly for a little bit, although the decision impacted, of course, by the emergence is yesterday, the big news, Roland Garros saying, hey, you know, screw you, screw you. And I actually, I'm just going to go with swearing here since we can edit you other tournaments. Uh, we're going to go where we want to go. And so they make that decision. They announce uh, they are moving towards the end of September. I want to say it's September 20th to that October 4th range, uh, which not only would take place six days after the U.S. Open, but you talk about all of the events that would be influenced by that change. Uh, just, I mean, so many uh, ATP and 250 events scheduled, uh, ATP 250 and WTA uh, international and plus events scheduled during that time. Your thoughts on you know the announcement by Roland Garros to make that switch? Uh, my initial thought was that I was uh, excited that they were taking a proactive approach to rescheduling their event. Uh, obviously, the Grand Slams are the richest events in the world, as well as the most rewarding points-wise. So just from strictly a financial point of view it's in all of our best interest to have grand slams take place every year um and so fred the french taking that move and taking those dates uh i was great as far as that uh goes however i know the you know there are issues on the men's and the women's side with you know an event like that choosing willfully choosing to go up against existing tour events because it's a jobs issue obviously the tournaments are members of the tours on you know, on both sides and they were obviously and understandably very upset with that move um, you know it's uh there's an overall jobs uh, number issue potentially because when tournaments take place simultaneously that's you know that's um fewer opportunities over the course of a year for a certain for a particular player to you know to have a job um but uh yeah in the big picture like i think the french you know choosing to take a date um obviously you know it wasn't received well but I think it's a good thing when you you know when the biggest events on the calendar are choosing to take place rather than choosing to cancel themselves. Yeah, certainly, and maybe you can. I, I mean, for the financial, you know, you make a first round appearance at a Grand Slam that can fund at least six, you know, six months maybe on tour, even for so many players. But uh, you talk about where it's placed and how many uh, events are going to be canceled as a result. I think it was I saw yesterday. It was how many events? I think it was Jose Morgado who tweeted out. It was like I think six. It's Met St. Peter. Uh, Chengdu, Sophia, Zhuhai, and then obviously Labor Cup uh, on the ATP side and the WTA, Guangzhou. Who says so- they're not going to cancel? They say they're going to play. Which was incredible. I, I mean, is it really? This is 2020 in a nutshell, right? That the U.S. Open, that Labor Cup, are now trolling the French Open on social media. It's like, oh my God, where where are we at as a society? Yeah, well, that's. Uh, I mean, there's so many underlying questions that i have about why they chose those dates like did the french federation choose those dates as sort of a you know like a you to the usta and tennis australia like two of the other grand slam nations who are obviously you know they're they're invested in the labor cup they're partners um was it like something at roger who's chosen not to play the french you know in the past um 
was there you know was there some other reason in in mind and uh yeah it's just it's just really it's curious you know them choosing to go up against the labor cup it's a big power move obviously and uh you know i don't know if any of those conspiracy theory, you know, theories are true. They could be untrue. It could just be the French trying to pick a date that you know corresponds with decent weather in Paris. Um, but yeah, I'm not sure. Um, also today, Strasbourg came out. The WC event in Strasbourg came out and said they're looking at a fall date that would correspond with the French Open. So there's just a lot of moving pieces happening right now. Um, you know, I don't know if these events are sort of choosing that Asia is going to be off the calendar, which I don't think it will. I think they're going to be very aggressive and trying to make the Asian events happen and to show that their countries are open for business. Um, there's just, there's so many moving pieces right now. And, and we, and again, we have no idea what, you know, the landscape of the world will look like at that time, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And we talked about this at the end of last season when we had Tumani Cario of the Guardian on and China's investment in the WTA. They aren't going to want to sacrifice that. They've spent so much money over these past couple of years uh, to set up all of these events to make it a more prominent part of the season. And yeah, there's also the question, what if they just continue on with the other events? What if players 500 through 200 who aren't playing the slams, you know, ranking-wise, get to just go play those events? You know, that's a little bit more money in their pocket now, whether the tournament will want to do that or not that's a completely other question but yeah you mentioned it the fact that Roger Federer hasn't played the French Open four of the last five seasons is this a trolling by them if it is that's freaking hilarious um also just so that I feel a bit better you didn't swear but that f you I'm gonna make quacked out just so I feel good about myself um but no it's a fascinating thing and that's I'm glad you brought up the weather right because at a certain point Let's say the French Open wins this fight and they get to keep their date and others move and act accordingly. I mean, does would anyone want to be play? Could you even play a Grand Slam in New York in late October, early November? Because at that point, you're seeing snow, you're seeing rain. It, I just feel like the more things get pushed back, you know, the 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 more difficult it will be to reschedule everything. And I, I don't know. That's the thing, right? All these events are up in the air at this point. Yeah, I mean, there's going to be a huge, uh, you know, there's going to be a huge push by the tours, I think, to try to get in as many events that have been postponed as possible before the end of the year. So potentially, you know, if things go really well, if the virus becomes under control, say we, you know, say tennis starts playing in July or August, I don't know when, or September, like, you know, I think you're going to see a push. Uh, I think you're going to see a potentially a season that goes into December. Uh, with a shorter off season in, in 2020, you know, going into 2021. But, you know, at this point, it's just, it's wishful thinking. And there's just so much, you know, there's so much beyond our control. And there's so much that we don't know right now, you know. Yeah. And certainly with, you know, the the date being pushed back to July 8th, you lose Indian Wells, Guadalajara, Miami, Houston, Marrakesh, Charleston, Bogota, Monte Carlo. I go on and on. Barcelona, Munich, Prague, Madrid, Rome, Geneva, Strasbourg, Lyon. Uh, so many tournaments influenced just simply by pushing it back to uh, June 8th. But I'm curious because let's say hypothetically that, the, again, the French Open wins the staring contest, that six days after the U.S. Open, you would have the start of the French Open. How difficult is it to transition between surface to surface that quickly? How long is the, you know, the typical uh, training block that you will try and put in before making a surface switch? Yeah, I mean, ideally, ideally you'd want to have maybe a couple of weeks on the new surface uh, to sort of get acclimated to it and to get your, you know, the certain parts of the body that you use a little bit differently on clay versus hard uh but you know like the reality is that you know if you look at the wta players 
most of them play Charleston on the heels of Miami, you know, or look at the men. Most of them play Houston on the heels of Miami. So it's not totally unprecedented. And I don't think it's, you know, I think we're dealing with, uh, we're going to be dealing with a scenario that's not exactly ideal, but I think at the end of the day, we're going to be really grateful that there's hopefully there's two grand slams back to back, you know? Yeah. That would be something special. I mean, for us, yeah, it'd be amazing. Up. I mean, it'd be so cool. Yeah, it'd be content central. I'd be calling you every other day, be like, we have six storylines to talk about. You want to do one of the six podcasts? And you'd be like, well, you called me handsome, so sure. Um, so- I mean, you know, the, uh, you know, getting back to the French, like they in the past have not been afraid to do things that ruffle feathers. Like when they had the Sharapova wildcard announcement only on Facebook Live and I like, didn't tell her first, like how uncool is that, you know? Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, look, they they like to play things fast and loose over there, um, which is uh, that's a lot of fun. Um, no, I don't, I don't know. Um, but I guess you know. And then I, I do want to change topics here. But in terms of this last Corona-related thing, in terms of you know the long-term implications, and there's so many uh, that for us to talk about. But players have times on their on their hands. They're going to sit around. They're going to chat. So many have already expressed on social media, "Hey, we you know we have not liked the direction this past month has go. If there's ever, God forbid, a crisis like that, uh, we don't want it. You know the 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 aftermath to look the same way it has this time. Do you expect structural changes as a result of this? Do you think there will be any time for self-reflection to say, hey, this is what we got wrong, this is how we improve it moving forward, or do you, as you, we keep saying, unprecedented, but do you think it's really just, you know, get through the day-to-day, try and survive, try and make it so that, you know, we can have tennis again this season? Yeah, I think, you know, right now people are trying their best to get through and they're also trying to figure out how to move forward in a productive way that's better for uh, the game as a whole. You see a real push right now or a real coming together of, you know, the ATP, the WTA, the Wimbledon and the French Open, or excuse me, Wimbledon and the U.S. Open to you're going to see joint statements moving forward from them because obviously what happened with the with Roland Garros was kind of you know, was not great for a lot of people, but you're going to see a lot of joint statements moving forward. You're going to see a lot of people on the same page regarding the players. I think you're going to see, uh, I think you're going to see like Vashek, Pospisil and his crew, you know, I think they're going to come up with a lot of ideas to try to protect the players in the future from something, you know, like this. Obviously it shows how fragile the game is and the, you know, the shortcomings and the structuring of it for particularly for the players. Um, you know, I don't know. Uh, the game would need a real reorganization uh, to sort of improve in that sense. And, you know, one of the things I've always thought was a great idea was sort of a universal basic income, like a guaranteed salary for the year based on where you finished the year before. And then obviously your winnings get added on to that. But something where there's you have a little bit of a safety net and that can protect you. And, you know, in times like this, protect you from injury, protect you from the needs of play when you're not you know, feeling up to it without sort of sacrificing the benefits of your hard work over the past year. And, um, you know, there's just a lot of, you know, people always get upset when athletes complain. They say, oh, like millionaire athletes who play a game for the living. But when you take away that part and look at it strictly as a job, for anyone who's an independent contractor right now, they're feeling the pinch and they're feeling the pain. And, you know, without governmental action, like, you know, the entire economy could freaking collapse. So, People who, you know, anyone who's an independent contractor in whatever field they work in is, you know, is, is scared right now and is, is looking in the face at, you know, months potentially of, of zero income. You know? So I think uh, I think some action in the future on behalf of the players would be really welcomed. Absolutely. And, you know, Roger uh, Novak 
uh, Rafa, Serena, those are the faces of the sport. There are all hundreds of millionaires, but there are less millionaires than there are millionaires on the professional tour in professional tennis. So, 100%. yeah, tennis players are affected just as much as any other industry. And, you know, it's been interesting because we've seen so many players down again for health safety reasons. Who knows if this is even going to be a possibility, but say on social media, hey, who needs lessons in my area? Or, you know, what can I do right now to make an income? Because I need some sort of income. And, you know, these are all things that have to be explored. It's fascinating that you bring up the universal basic income because I know that's something to be kicked around just to explore that further. Where would the money come from? I know there are pensions that exist. I think if you're in the ATP Top 75, you qualify that for a little bit while uh, for a little while. I know that they ha- offer health insurance options for various players depending on your level. But I would have lot- every tournament pay into it. I, I would basically get rid of all first round prize money. That would all go to paying the players' salaries for the year. So basically you, you would you would have your whatever monthly salary or biweekly salary. And then when you win, you know, so if you lose first round of tournament, you, you don't get paid out in addition. You just get your salary for every round you win. Then that's when you start gaining money, you know, paid out at the end of the tournament or however frequently they pay. Um, so that's kind of how I would, you know, do that. Obviously, as your ranking improves over the course of the year, that you know that improves your salary for the next year. You could do it by certain bands of players or whatever. But uh, yeah, I would do basically no, you know, no first round prize money. And uh, yeah, so for me, that takes away too the incentive for players to play when they're not fit. Because mm-hmm. you know, if you have to choose between missing, you know, whatever a Grand Slam, and or you know, the first round. Obviously, rules have changed about how much money you can get if you're an on-site withdrawal or whatever. But uh, but still, I don't think players have to make that choice in general. So no, that I, I love that idea. Again, that's again why we love having you on these podcasts as frequently as possible. And also, would it shock me if Roger Federer's like, "Hey, for the rest of my career, I'm not taking a cent in prize money. Um, I'm just going to give it all to players ranked 400 and lower in equal amounts of checks." I'd be like, "That's just a Roger move." Um, so you know, you could just see it happening from him. But yeah, I mean, and so many of the because the the other counter is well, what about all of their sponsorships? Aren't so many of the sponsorship deals incentive laced? It's if you're top 200, you get X amount. If you're top 100, you get X amount. Those sponsorship deals alone don't float you for an entire season, do they? No, not for not for too many players. I mean, and so many of those deals too, like you said, they have uh, they have reductions in them, or obviously they have things that trigger the clauses. So you know, if you're a player who's you know whatever 50 or 60, and say you know you're getting 25 grand a year from some clothing company, if you fall out of the top 100, like that deal is going to zero. You know, so there's um, there's not a ton of players who are you know making great money like just with you know being on the endorsement side like that yeah exactly there's a bunch of rfs but there's no sr there's no sj <laughs> um so yeah there's uh, i i completely agree with you there well you know i i do want to offer some non-corona content for our listeners and i asked you this in advance but we did get to see some tennis in the 2020 season and it does feel like years ago that we got to see it um but there were some actions that i do want to talk to you about in particular let's start on the wta side the, the big result of the season sophia kennan winning her first match major it's another 21 year old player winning a major it does feel to me that we've seen a generational shift finally occurring on both tours but for the women in particular I mean you can list on and on and on how about Elena Rybakina who I think is 21 years old she was I don't think she she lost what like three matches thus far in her season she was just on fire but the obvious ones the Bardis the Osaka's the uh 
Benchiches and Sabalenka's Andrescu's of the world. It does seem like all of these young players are finally finding a foothold, finally ascending their way to the top of the women's game. Do you think that's more of a product of, you know, the reign of Serena has finally ended and, you know, during her these past five years, no one really filled that vacuum and so now all of these young players can come and fill it? Do you think it's changing trends in the game? Why do you think we finally are seeing a new generation of players? You know, is it simply just Mother Nature uh, finally winning against some of these top players? Yeah, you're seeing an interesting sort of collision of, there is an interesting confluence of younger players starting to come into their own and finally some you know the established veterans who are dominating the game starting to you know hit the top of the hill and start to coast downhill a little bit um you know it's and again it's not a complete abdication of the throne but you're seeing some new faces make moves which is a really exciting time you know if you're a tennis fan and you're at a tournament you know, in the future, obviously, not all these marquee players can play on center court. So there's going to be so many fun names that you're going to be able to see on the smaller courts. And, and you know, it just makes it really exciting week to week. And it's cool to see dominance, but it's also cool to see, you know, people come out of nowhere. The storylines are unbelievable. Um, Sonia Kennan in, in Melbourne was it was so exciting to watch. I mean, I watched her early in the event. And I, kind of, you know, I had this feeling that she could win the tournament, sort of similar to when I watched Andrescu in New York. Um, and it's just it's just cool to see these people, these players who are freaking fierce competitors and who don't, you know, who don't back down when they play the big dogs, who, you know, who seize the moment and who compete harder and who, you know, fist pump or come on like in their face, like showing, you know, there, there's no there's no fear here. There's no deference here. Obviously, they all have a ton of respect for the careers of these people that have, you know, paved the way for them to make, you know, huge money and play on big stages. But when they get in the moment, man, they're freaking going after them. Yeah, and, you know, there's, I was humble bragging at the beginning. You throw in the humble brag there. You knew Andrescu and Kennan were going to win. I like it. Um, but, no, I, I completely agree with you. And I'm curious, do you think it's a style thing? Because on the men's side, I watch some of these young guys play, and you watch an Andre Rublev or an FAA, and I apologize to listeners who have heard me make this point before, but you watch them in practice sessions, and their forehands just sound different than anyone I've ever seen play. They hit the ball bigger than just the explosion off of the the racket it's crazy but you see the same sort of thing on the women's side you know players like Sabalenka or Benchic or Andrescu Osaka who can just hit the cover off of the ball I mean it sounds fairly obvious that the, the sport of tennis would continue to progress further and further but have you seen any stylistic changes do you think the game has shifted at all over these past two to three years to a place where now you know as important as physic physicality is still more and more important than ever but you know that it's allowing these sort of players to break throughs in ways they couldn't in the mid 2000s. Well, you're seeing, you know, that combined with, you know, some of the top players get a little bit older. Um, if, if you're a younger, you know, if you're a young one of these up and comers who can force one of these established players on their heels and make them re make them respond, make them react, make them defend, you can exploit that age difference even a little bit more. And so you're seeing people, you know, and Andrescu, Kennan with her backhand down the line or with the drop shots, like people, you know, and you said FAA, I mean, I think about Daniil Medvedev and, you know, these other guys who can put players on their heels and can do it over and over again. And, you know, with their, you know, with the athleticism of the four people we, I just, we just mentioned, like unbelievable movers, 
so dynamic. I mean, the, you know, the sport is constantly evolving. And, you know, at some point, you know, it's such a cliche, but Mother Nature's undefeated, you know? <laughs> Well, except against Roger Federer. I thought we all agreed. He, he's so the only far. One. Yeah, he's so the only far. one who's like, hey, I, I mean, I asked my mom, who's an OB just for a little. That's another humble brag. Yeah, my mom's an OB-GYN <laughs> to everyone out there. No, I'm just kidding. Um, But, yeah, like two sets of twins. Are you kidding me? Like that man just defies <laughs> yeah. human nature. It's just ridiculous. Um, But, yeah, I mean, it's really a fascinating time to be a fan of the game because I do think there are so many talented young players out there, and I do think we're going to get to see so many of them make a name for themselves. Medvedev down the home stretch made a name for himself last season. Kennan at the start of this season. It's not just Australia. She also won in Lyon the week before the season ended. So, you know, they continue to look better and better. But, and on the men's side, and this is the last one that I want to get some recommendations from you before we go, Novak Djokovic, who we talked about earlier in the week on our mini break podcast, looking at some of the storylines we've seen from the tennis season. He's 19-0. And, you know, he's, I think he has now, uh, this extends back, go to the Davis Cup. It's like a 22-match win streak. It's the seventh 20-plus match win streak of his career, which is just bonkers. Um, but do you, I'm curious when you see a player like Djokovic, because I would argue that he's not playing at the level he did in 2011. He's not playing at the level he did at in 2015. I think it's just a byproduct of him playing confidently. I think he has more confidence in his game right now than maybe ever before. And so I'm curious, A, your thoughts on Djokovic's start to the season, why he's had so much success, but also, is is that a thing where you can just be so confident that these results are, that even if you're not playing, you're absolute best tennis just you can ride that wave of momentum to repeated success yeah a hundred percent and i've seen it firsthand you know when players win so often they get sometimes get this sense about them that they're gonna get through the next tough moment and and they don't need to play great but they need to play solid and they're going to continue to execute in the big moments regardless of how they feel of how well they're playing and you just know you're going to get through it And, and for novak you know, I, I feel like how he's playing now, you know, it's not flashy, but he just doesn't miss and he keeps the pressure on guys. He squeezes the court. He takes away time. I mean, he hits his backhand up the line. He's more aggressive with his forehand now than, you know, than ever. But, you know, it's not, you know, it's not, it's not Roger like in the mid 2000s where it's just beautiful and lighting up the stat sheet. Like Novak is just suffocating you. It reminds me a little bit of, you know, of, of Andre Agassi in his, in his glory days. And that went just taking now. your legs away from you. Well, you know, six-year-old me remembers that well. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I keep dating myself. I know. No, no, no. Again, it's uh, you'll be a silver fox before you know it. Um, <laughs> uh, no, I, I, I think that's completely fair. He also, for Djokovic in particular, uh, he... He likes to play with his food, too. You just, like, he throws in these drop shots, and, you know, the match against Monfils, he goes down match points, fights his way back. I just, I feel like that's a byproduct of, he's like, yeah, I can lose this game, but don't worry, I can turn it on. And so the platitude of tennis is 20% physical, 80% mental. I don't think you could ever actually put a number on it. But given how thin the margins are skill-wise between these players, you know, what percentage of the breakthrough uh, for so many of them when their results are? based on confidence based on how your mentality is heading into a week it's so significant i mean it's just it's one of those things where you know you get to a certain level and there's so many players who hit the ball well but it's you know how much you believe in your game in big moments it's how much you 
are willing to go for certain things and to not play safe, you know, but to, to risk it, uh, that's really what determines it. Like those, and these are all mental things. And, and that's often too, while you'll see players who may have weaknesses or who may have faults in their game. That's why you'll see some of these players have more success than, than the players you'll see where, wow, that person has no issues in their game, but for whatever reason, they're being held back. And, you know, it's, it's almost entirely mental. Yeah, it's really interesting to see uh, just for so many of these players because, again, there's so many talented ones out there. All right, last fun question for you, and then I want to get to the recommendations. Novak Djokovic joked around 19-0. My goal is to go undefeated this season. Ha, 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 ha. Let's say, you know, the gods are kind. We end up getting tennis later on in the year. If I offered you, and I don't know if you're a gambling man, but if I said, hey, 10-to-1 odds, Djokovic Dude, goes tennis undefeated. integrity unit's going to be all over me. <laughs> okay, he's not a gambling man. He hates gambling. He despises it this is not even a hypothetical but we'll go then percent chances he actually could go undefeated this season uh i think it depends on how the schedule's laid out i think it depends when roland garros falls i think if if he goes deep in the open i think it's going to have a hard time turning around a week later in roland garros depends when rafa loses in rolling in, in u.s open if you know if the schedule is as is and if these guys forego the labor cup and play the U.S. Open and Roland Garros back to back. I think it depends on those two things. How deep Novak goes in the Open. I mean, obviously, you're talking about him being undefeated, so he's going to need to win it. I think it's, so. It basically depends when Rafa loses. If Rafa's fresh going into Paris, or if Rafa's a little beat up from you know a few weeks in the hard course. It's going to be just my luck as an Alex Vera fan. He's going to win that French Open, and everyone's going to be like, yeah, but it's an asterisk because it didn't count because of where the season went. I'm going to be like, no, it counts. Come on, guys. Uh, so you're right. There is so much uncertainty, but it's going to be – hopefully we will resume tennis, and it will be something fun for us to watch. But all right, last thing I want to ask you about, and this is the recommendation. It's not another bonus question, I promise, but I asked you to prepare three recommendations of tennis-related content, whether it's a YouTube match highlight, whether it's a book uh, obviously you're going to recommend all of the cracked rackets podcasts so you can throw those out the window anyways um, but for those who like me are just in constant need of a fix some sort of tennis fix throughout the day your three recommendations of things they can either watch read or consume to make sure they have their tennis content needs fulfilled okay so on youtube there is a five hour clip of andy roddick versus Eunice Alanawi, 2003 Australian Open quarterfinals. Roddick wins 21-19 in the fifth set. This was an unbelievable match. Um, funny story about that match, actually. So years ago, I was working out with a fitness coach who didn't know much about tennis. He asked if I had any you know, clips of matches to watch. I gave him this video. The next day, he came back to me. He was like, wow. He's like, "That your sport is freaking ridiculous. Um, and, you know, I actually just watched, if you don't want to watch the whole five hours, I watched about, there's a 10-minute there's a ten minute highlight clip also on YouTube that I watched today, and just the, the points were a joke. Um, that's one. <laughs> I, it truly, you know, the, the tennis will blow your mind. Um, number two, I would recommend anything by David Foster Wallace about tennis. His essays are, you know, his, his writing is, is amazing. Um, he has an essay about Federer. He has an essay about Michael Joyce. He has a story about his life as a junior player uh, back in the day. Um, for those who don't know, David Foster Wallace is probably one of the greatest American writers of our generation, wrote, you know, wrote nonfiction, uh, passed away a couple of years ago, um, but just an incredible writer. I would highly recommend that. Um, and third, I have, 
Andre Agassi, 2001 U.S. Open against uh, Pete Sampras, the four-set match that had no breaks in it. Uh, just it, such an incredible contrast. Pete was serving and volume. The courts in New York were super fast at the time. Pete was chipping and charging. Andre's, you know, spinning in serves, being aggressive with his first shot. You know, returning on the screws. Just, uh, and, you know, one of my one of my favorite matches I've ever watched. And, um, you know, I, I was watching some of that earlier today after you asked me that too. And it's just, it's amazing tennis. Fun to see the contrast. Fun to see the fast courts. I would love to see some fast courts come back on tour. That'd be really fun. Yeah, no, the best part about going down the YouTube rabbit hole is just how many different things you end up seeing. I, there's this one highlight package of just all of the highlights of Sampras's runs to Wimbledon titles in the 90s, and I watched all six of them. And I was oh, like, yep, you, you could take my 45 minutes. I don't What else am I going to be doing now? <laughs> I have um, one more recommendation for you that's off the, uh, it's off the one through three because it's just invaluable. Oh, go for it. Yeah, so you got to, you know, make sure you tune to the tennis channel and look out for my one-minute clinics. I mean, this is valuable content (laughs) to improve your game. Oh, perfect. All right, what can we expect in the near future? What are you teaching us? There's, I think I have maybe seven or eight that are up there. They're also on my Instagram. But, uh, you know, in Indian Wells, uh, it was a windy day. Stevie hit a drop shot into the wind. The guy ran in, you know, pushed the shot. Stevie went lob into the wind over the guy's head. You know, the, when you're against the wind, the, you know, the wind knocks the ball down when you're lobbing. And uh, I'm like, hey, dude, did you watch my one-minute clinic? That was my first topic. And uh, <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with, yeah, he probably saw my one-minute clinic, used it in freaking practice, and that's the way it goes. <laughs> I love to hear it. No, I will say to your recommendations, one, anyone who's aware of the, what the term trolling means, like please <laughs> actually read David Foster Wallace to expand your vocabulary, get some real, uh, you know, get some real literature in. Uh, as fun as the U.S. Open statements and the Labor Cup statements are, completely echo your sentiment. No one writes about tennis better uh, outside of David, you know, David Foster Wallace and his thoughts. I've been saving that 2003 U.S. Open Andy Roddick run. I just don't want to... I'm, I'm writing a piece currently for Crack Rackets on the U.S. No, the Aussie Some... Open. Aussie oh, Open. Aussie Open, against, excuse me. Against Ellen Alley. This was a match that took place like in the middle of the night, and not that many people watched it, but uh, it's right. just, it's, it's, you know, unfortunately, it's visor Andy Roddick, not, you know, baseball cap Andy Roddick, but... Uh... <laughs> Does he still have highlights? You know, it's pretty spiky. You got the stiffler look going on. Um, but uh, it's just unbelievable tennis, and it's so fun to watch uh, Andy play like that. He's so powerful. You know, he kind of was one of the guys who bridged the, you know, the Agassi generation and then the current generation that we're seeing now. He's playing the modern, such a modern style uh, with the grips and the forehands. And, uh, you know, I just I think he doesn't, you know, get the respect he probably deserves for, you know, for who he was in the game. Do I just such a good match? Do you want to hear one of my controversial takes? Sure. Uh, uh, I feel okay. Let me preface it by saying this. Anyone who grew up in America and played tennis grew up a fan, and that's my age, born 1995 or later, absolutely went through an Andy Roddick fan phase, Uh, or 99.9%. I was in the 0.1%. I'm just going to come out and say it. One of the least enjoyable players to watch of my generation. I mean, that serve was gorgeous, and he brought his feet together, and my older brother has a funny story of he played a tournament once where he tried to serve exactly like Andy Roddick, and he won that first match, and then he tried to play the second match, and he ended up losing it 0-0, and it was incredible. Um, But I... I can't watch. It's just a lot of back. It's like, why aren't you moving forward? Oh, you are going to move forward? Oh, you're not really moving forward how you probably should be. And, I mean, you're way better than I am. But I always got frustrated watching Roddick. Uh, I mean, he just came up in a – he came up, unfortunately, 
he was peaking when Roger was coming on the scene. It was a bad, you know, it was just a bad matchup for him. I think he, I think his game changed a little too much over the years. I would have liked to have seen him yeah, uh, straighten out his shots a little bit more, not to play flat, but to continue playing, you know, aggressive. I thought as he got older, he sort of, um, you know, he counterpunched more from the baseline, sort of relied on the serving, tried to use a slice a little bit more to change speeds. And I would have liked to see him, you know, continue to play aggressive. Like in this Allen Alley match, he hit a number of backhands up the line, like with his two-hander. Um, but, you know, he just, he carried the torch for American tennis for a long time. And he was an unbelievable player. It was actually really fun to watch that match because I hadn't seen any clips of him in a while. So it was really cool. I'm glad you made the point. In my head, someone with that big of a serve should not be a borderline push. And I say that lovingly. I say that lovingly. Again, Andy, come on the podcast. Tell me while I'm wrong. And I'm sure, you know, our friend Primps Ripped will be like, don't talk about Andy like that. Um, and well, it's kind of like one of those things where if, you know, but that game style made him a uh, you know, a lock in the top 10 for, you know, years upon years. And, you know, maybe there wasn't as much upside, but there was for sure less downside, you know? So it's kind of one of those things. And and I think everyone that worked with him sort of tried to push him to get out of his comfort zone. But sometimes it's tough to go against, uh, you know, how your sort of your brain is wired to play, you know? No, completely fair. And again, he a generation of anyone who sold a hat between 2003 and 2010, tennis related. You owe Andy Roddick some commission uh, because did you, you know, did you go visor? No, oh, you you, know, you were the one percent. You were the point one percent. Never mind. You probably yeah, didn't go visor. Not only did I not go visor, I knew I was going to lose my hair early, so I was like, don't even put anything on that head. Uh, just leave it up. Let it flow for as long as possible. But yeah, those are all great recommendations. My one of my favorite matches. I will always plug this is the 2012 Australian. Open semifinal between Andy Murray and Novak Djokovic. I just think, in terms of if you want to talk oh, about how the game changed in terms of physicality, that match epitomizes it. And that Djokovic oh, then rebounded and played Nadal in the final after that. That was the best weekend of tennis I've ever seen. Was that the year that uh, Nadal played Verdasco? That, I think and it was the, that same year. Because that match, too, Nadal Verdasco was, was sick. It was like five hours of two lefties. Like Verdasco was, this is like, Verdasco straight from Vegas and like benching 500 pounds, um, just crushing the ball and serving huge. Uh, so yeah, I mean, there's, there's just, there's so many matches online that are available and, um, you know, it's a cool time to watch them, you know, to sort of go down that rabbit hole, like you said. Yeah, and if you need a little bit of break in between, be sure to ca- check out Coach Lucero's Minute Clinics, which you can find on Tennis Channel. Tennis Channel, obviously, a supporter of this podcast as well. But, Coach, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Uh, be sure to stay safe. Be sure to do, you know, whatever you, you can to. Same uh, to you guys. Yeah, and, and anytime you want to come back on the podcast, you I'm not going to be doing much over the next six to eight weeks, <laughs> so uh, you know where to find me, Coach. Thank you. Thank you. All your followers, too. Like, you know, if you guys want to reach out via social media, talk about these matches, whatever, anything about tennis, uh, you know, I think we're all here sitting on our computers, on our phones. um, So we're all very accessible looking to engage these days. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Coach, again, take care. And uh, the spot is always open for you. Thank you. Take care, Alex. Hope you enjoyed my conversation with Coach Mark Lucero. What a great guy. 
right, folks? Uh, you know, his minute clinics on Tennis Channel, a staple of anyone who's trying to get better. How many times have you been watching a match and you see that pop up? It's always fun to see his smiling face. And yeah, all of us are looking for little tips so you can apply those tips daily. And we are just so grateful for Coach Lucero who continues to give us time whenever we ask. So thank you, Coach Mark. Uh, just a little bit of another contact rundown of what you can check out on our Crack Rackets website this week. We've had so many fun conversations already. You talk about who we've talked coronavirus with, Ben Rothenberg of the New York Times, Matt Jones, Kentucky Sports Radio, and of course John Wertheim of Sports Illustrated earlier in the week as well. Jamie McDonald and I also switching gears, talking a little non-coronavirus, talking the biggest storylines from the tennis world thus far in 2020. We talked about Novak Djokovic and his undefeated start, and obviously Coach Lucero and I just got into that as well, but if you want to hear more on that topic, go check out that mini break. You can also check out our thoughts on Christian Guerin, one of the breakout stars, certainly through the South American clay court swing uh, in this early portion of the year. We talk about how real that these results for him are recently. Do they change our projections for his upside? Is he just a clay quarter? Has he shown that he can be something more? Uh, Certainly one of the more fascinating prospects right now on the men's side, so be sure to go check those conversations out as well. On the Cracked Interviews front, you know our most recent episode. We talked to Austin Rapp, he, Carousel, uh, Guy uh, of Pepperdine, uh, putting together their new uh, website, My Tennis HQ, which offers similar instructional videos, instructional content to Coach Lucero. And, you know, it's great for our younger audience as well because those are guys who are fresh out of college and all incredibly well credentialed. So those are really fun conversations. Also had the chance to talk to our Crack Racket CEO, little brother, Presley Thieneman, who's preparing to go start his freshman year at Northwestern. For anyone who's got, you know, kids who are about to make that jump to college tennis or players in college tennis right now, players who want to make the jump to college tennis, uh, it's a great conversation with Presley to hear how he's preparing. And of course, our conversations with Vesa Punka of the JTCC, uh, that's about as good of a mind in tennis as you're going to find. So they all hold up well on the Great Shot podcast front. Uh, you know, we continue to be up to some fun stuff. We've got some really fun content in the pipelines for you. I'm not going to give that away, although I will say we just released our first edition of Overserved, our unintentionally, you know, our look at the unintentional comedy in tennis, some of the fun that we got to poke fun at tennis Twitter. If you need a distraction from the day-in, day-out worries and nerves that come with this ongoing coronavirus, it's a really nice 10 minutes that can just get your mind off thing, enjoy a quick laugh, and I know our super producer, Daniel Westoff, will be so appreciative if we can get that subscriber count on YouTube over 1,000, so please go subscribe there. Also, subscribe to this podcast, the Great Shot Podcast, Correct Interviews Podcast. Like, rate, subscribe, review, share with your friends. If you have a friend who's a tennis player, you know, we're all self-quarantining, or hopefully we're all at the very least social distancing right now to ensure that we can you know, move on from this coronavirus, ensure that everyone remains safe and we can get through this as quickly as possible. We're all looking for things to do during our day and nothing gets you through the day quicker and in a more enjoyable fashion than a Cracked Rackets podcast. Trust me, folks, so please go share them with your friends. Go review and If you guys have any questions for us, Find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, at Cracked Rackets. Me personally, at Great Shot Pod. Uh, eventually, I think we're going to try and do a mailbag podcast at some point over the next eight weeks. But fire questions away. We're happy to answer them on a day-by-day basis. As I mentioned, for our super producers, Max Fligner and Daniel Westoff, who, as always, have a f- of an editing job to do. Shout out to them because we wouldn't be able to do this day-by-day grind without their incredibly dedicated work. So thank you to all of them. But... 
for our friends at both Diadem Sports and Aerobar who continue to support us as well at Diadem. Use that promo code CR50. Aerobar, use that promo code CRACK30 for my lovely guest, Coach Mark Lucero, for our super producers, Max Flieger and Daniel Westoff, and from all of us here at both ten- at Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say, folks. That's the break, and we will see you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.